0: Life can seem like a twisted, windy road, or even worse, a dead end at times. But God's love never fails and it never runs out. He is at every turn, every dead end, and every new beginning. That's today on the podcast. Hey, this is Marisa from the Tower Hill production team. Thanks so much for listening into our Tower Hill podcast. Whenever or wherever you're listening, we hope this podcast blesses you, and we hope that you feel free to share it with someone that you know, so that they'll feel blessed too. When Jesus first found some of his disciples, they were on a boat, and he called to them. He said, cast your nets into the water, and they did. He offered a new beginning to them that would change the course of not only their lives, but millions of followers to come. Today, Pastor Julie talks about how starting over is a part of life we all experience. But when we look up and do it with God, that new beginning becomes more than we could have ever dreamed. Let's check it out right now. Good morning.
1: It's good to be with all of you today. And thank you to Chris Pete for leading our prayer time this morning. New opportunity, new possibility for him. So that is our theme for today. New possibilities, things that uh, we don't expect that uh, come our way. Can you think of a time in your life when you expected things to go a certain way, you had it all planned out, and then something happened that took you in a completely different direction? didn't go according to your plan. Maybe it was the unexpected end of something. Maybe it was the end of a job or career or a marriage or a health condition. Maybe it was something that happened, a natural disaster, Hurricane Sandy, a flood, a tornado, something far beyond your control. Or maybe it was the interpretation of a life event. Perhaps something happened in your life and you had an understanding of it that shaped your life and your behavior. And then years later, you come to find out That your interpretation of it was not the whole story. And when you filled in the missing pieces, it gave you a new perspective, a new understanding. Well, when situations like this come our way, we have a choice in how we respond. We can view our life as over, the death sentence, the end of life as we know it we can view circumstances like these as an opportunity, an invitation, if you will, to explore some new possibilities. This morning, we're going to look at the unexpected events in the lives of two people from the pages of Scripture. We're going to take a peek at the Old Testament prophet of Isaiah, who lived about 800 years before Jesus, and then we're going to fast forward uh, into... One of the first followers of Jesus, Simon, Simon Peter, was a fisherman. First, a little bit of a background. Um, We're going to be reading, uh, I guess, about the prophet Isaiah. A prophet is not someone who predicts the future. Yes, they give prophecies, but it's not like the psychic network hotline or, you know, crystal ball. A, A prophet is a messenger of God. And that message could be one of hope and comfort and good news, or it could be one of judgment, gloom and doom, bad news. You people stop doing that. That's why Jonah didn't want to take his assignment, because that that was the bad news message that God wanted him to to take. So um, Isaiah is a prophet of judgment. His job is to point out to people what they're doing wrong, not just to be mean, but to point people Toward God. So he would say things like, Woe to you, drunkards, woe to you, proud, arrogant people, woe to you, liars. Nobody says woe anymore, do they? Woe, unless we say, woe, that kind of woe, but woe to you, okay? So, a little context: Isaiah lived in a smaller part of the kingdom of Israel called Judah, once it divided up into north and south. And that kingdom was being taken over by the Assyrian army. And these people were going to be held captive, they were going to be prisoners in Babylon. So they're in survival mode. They're not thinking about their life and possibilities. Um, they are just thinking about their next meal. And the king during this time is King um, Uzziah. Now, things had been going well. They had been having success and prosperity and wealth, and people were happy. And this king started off on the right foot, but, and he progressed in his reign 52 years. Can you imagine somebody in power for 52 years? know, um, he began to lose his way and started to um, forget God. And what did God do? Thankfully, I don't think God does this anymore. We don't hear stories of it. God strikes Uzziah down with leprosy and he dies. And so all of a sudden, this life for the people of Judah was completely different. The life that they had for 52 years, they couldn't count on anymore. What they knew to be true wasn't true anymore. Their success, their prosperity, what used to work didn't work anymore. So here they are now, lonely, fearful, doubtful, discouraged, having to change their ways, and they're not liking it. So later this same year, Isaiah, the prophet, has a vision. Now just to be clear... Um, and he's grieving, right? He's grieving this loss of his favorite king. I'm going to describe this vision in just a moment. It's in the Scripture we'll read, but just a word about visions. Visions are things we see but don't actually happen, right? I mean, it's in the Bible, but it's not an event that occurred. It's something you can see that is not visible to others. And visions are one of the ways that God uses to communicate with us throughout scripture. You get the vision of the valley of dry bones or the burning bush, or there's all kinds of different places where God gives someone a vision. Now, the vision is not the same thing as a dream. You can have a vision while asleep or awake. And the last important part about a vision is it's usually related to the events of your life, right? Like you wouldn't have some far out, you know. Star Trek-like dream, because that's not like your everyday life. So it would be perhaps the people and places and things that are already in your life. The reason I say that is because when you see Isaiah's vision, it's going to sound a little like otherworldly, medieval, kind of Game of Thrones type thing. And But when you understand that it sounds like the decorations of the temple in Jerusalem, it makes a little more sense. So let's look now at this scripture of Isaiah 6, 1-8. And I put pretty pictures because then it'll make more sense. Okay. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. I think that's supposed to be his robe. So they couldn't see God. No one could see God and live, but there was a sense of God's presence being there. Above, uh, seraphs were in attendance above him, each had six wings, with two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. House, also temple, filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Pause one right there. I'm going to go back to that picture so you can see. Okay, so that's supposed to be the rope flowing down, six-winged creatures flying around, singing. Not something we might picture today. I just got to give you an idea, at least this artist's rendering of that. Well, let's take a closer look of this story. So notice what Isaiah does first. He looks up. He takes his attention off of himself and he looks up to experience God's presence and sees the robe and the God on the throne and this sort of incredible scene of glory and majesty and power. Six-winged creatures singing and flying all around, swooping around the temple, shaking thresholds, smoke filling the air. I mean, this is a very vivid, multisensory vision. Now, I don't know about you, but if I walked into church this morning and that was the scene, I would be frightened, right? The sanctuary was filled with smoke, and there's flying things and shaking. What is a threshold anyway? Is that like over the doors? Collins. Anyway, things were shaking. There's a whole lot of shaking going on. Um, yeah, I would be completely frightened. But Isaiah has a very different response when he is encounters this power and glory and sort of heart, thing that can't even describe. He is overwhelmed and he is changed, and he turns his attention in a way we wouldn't expect he turns his attention inward. He looks in. He realizes God is God and I am not and has a new awareness and understanding of himself. So think about that. The more clearly he understood who God was, the more he understood how finite and mortal and sinful his state was. And for a moment, he stopped focusing on everyone else with the woe is you, woe is you finger-pointing, he turns his attention onto himself and his own sinfulness. He's now saying, woe is me, not woe is you. Not like as a pity party, but just as an awareness of, oh, I'm not who I thought I was. Maybe I don't have it all together. Maybe I don't have all the answers. And that leads him to, to confess. And as you know from the process in worship, after we confess, we're reminded of our forgiveness. In the traditional service, we have a formal way of doing that. We have a confession of sin, and then we have an assurance of pardon, where you are reminded, in Jesus Christ, you are forgiven. Even though you probably forget, in the last seven days, I'm going to remind you again, you are forgiven. Now, in this scene, it's done in a very uh, tangible, and might I say painful way. I, is this like an ancient version of, Having your mouth washed off with soap, I don't know. But I don't want, I would not want a hot coal on my tongue. But that was the imagery that was part of the ritual of cleansing. This whole process of uh, Isaiah encountering God's glory and power and light and then turning it on himself and seeing his own state reminds me of what it's like to go caving as spelunking. Anybody been caving before? Summer's Best Two Weeks kids maybe have done that. That's that's where I first learned it. Now, let me describe. This is not the tourist version of cave exploring where there's a nice little walkway and a tour guide with the lantern and paved path. No, no, no. I'm talking about the kind where you get wet and muddy and cold, okay, because caves are wet and cold. So what do you do? You um, pile on uh, old... Jeans and sweatshirts over your t-shirt and shorts. Maybe we we'll wear a bandana and a helmet with a headlamp. And um, we head on in, often with like, you know, 42 elementary school kids when I was a camp counselor. Anyway, you head into the cave, and at first, you can barely see. It takes a while for your eyes to adjust. It's kind of like when you're out in the bright sun for a long time, and you come inside the house. doesn't You, you kind of like can't, can't see who you are. It's sort of like that. But as you get in, you adjust, your eyes are okay, and you might bump up against the cave wall here and there. Oh, you know, a little mud there, a little dirt there, no big deal. Next thing you know, you are shimmying between crevices, you're crawling on your belly, you're sliding down on your backside on, on uh, steep parts, and having a ball. And you start to really relax and enjoy yourself. You're like, this is really fun. And you're not worried about being cold and wet and dark. In fact, at one point, we get the kids to be really quiet and still, and they realize, like, even if someone's hand is in front of their face, they can't, they can't see it. Total darkness. But then we start heading out. And even the tiniest crack of light from the cave entrance is bright compared to what we... Were, it's kind of like, you know, you're in the, asleep at night and the crack of the door is, is blinding. That's what it's like. And as we get closer and closer to the mouth of the cave, the sunlight is so blinding and so hot because we've been cold and wet that there's this stark, stark contrast. And again, taking a while for eyes to adjust, we have to you know, cover our eyes or put on sunglasses or a baseball hat. And then the next thing we notice is, oh, my goodness, we are filthy. We are covered in mud from head to toe. How did we miss this? We didn't notice when we were in the cave. We were just having a ball. But now, in this bright, bright light, we are a mess. And the kids usually squeal with delight that they're so muddy. And what would mom say? And all that. But first thing we do, of course, peel off all the muddy clothes. I think that's what it was like for Isaiah when he realized this overwhelming power and notices next to God, I'm nothing. I thought I led a pretty good life. But next to God's glory, I'm not even close. I thought I was pretty clean coming out of this cave. But now that I see next to this sunlight, and then after being in darkness for two hours, I am covered in mud. But that's not the end of the story. After Isaiah looks up and looks in, then he is ready to turn his attention in a new way. He doesn't just go home and call it a day. He's ready for a new assignment, and God presents him with a new possibility. He looks out, gets his attention off himself, and says, Okay, God, what do you have for me? And God gives him this invitation, a call, to be used by God in a new way that he had not considered before. Now, to be clear, God is not asking Isaiah to to be an usher or to bake bread for the fellowship time. (laughs) There are no volunteers for this job. He is willing, God is asking him to do something that no one else wants to do, and that is tell people how they're sinning. Tell them how they need to change their ways. But when God asks Isaiah to do that and says, who shall I send, who will go for me, he instantly volunteers. Here I am, Lord, send me. Powerful. And our New Testament story has a similar theme. Uh, Jesus has just begun his public ministry he 's been out he 's just got out of the wilderness after being tempted by Satan for forty days and he 's starting to preach and teach all throughout Israel. Crowds are pressing in on him everywhere he goes. people follow him he can 't really get away and then uh, he, one time he 's preaching and near the uh, Sea of Galilee, also called the Lake of geneszaret. Um, he needs somewhere to escape, and so he gets into a fishing boat with some fishermen. And that's what we're going to read right now, Luke chapter 5. Once while Jesus was standing beside the lake of Gennesaret, and the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he saw two boats there at the shore of the lake. The fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little way from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let down your nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we have worked all night long, but have caught nothing. Yet if you say so, I will let down the nets. Right, let down the nets. Keep going. Next one. When they had done this, they caught so many fish that their nets were beginning to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon and Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, "'Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man.'" For he and all who were with him were amazed at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Then Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching people. When they brought their boats to shore, they left everything and followed him. Did you notice that same pattern? The look up, look in, look out. We're gonna look at that in just a second. So let's just picture the scene a little bit here. Simon's been up fishing all night. Nothing to show for it. Jesus, who is not a fisherman, tells Simon, who is a fisherman, how to do his job. Right? You can imagine a little skepticism on Simon's part. These were professional fishermen, they know their trade. They know their lake. They know about the way. They had always done it. Right? Do you have an area of your life that maybe is like that? Excuse me. I got this. This is, my, this is my thing. But when Jesus suggested that they try a new way, a new location, a new spot, maybe a new way to position their nets, there had to be an eye roll or two. I mean, really, Jesus? You're going to tell me how to do my job. I know what I'm doing. But Simon surprises us. He looks up, and he's open to a new possibility. Okay, Jesus, if you say so. And then the next thing you know, fish everywhere, nets breaking, boats sinking. Oh, my gosh, this certainly must have grabbed Simon's attention off the water and got him looking up and around. And next thing you know, he needs help. He, he yells to the neighbors in their boat. Uh, hey, guys, we need your help. And he's focused on getting all these fish in. Now, I've got to think that there's some parts of this dialogue left out because it's amazing to me that Simon doesn't say a word about the fish. He doesn't say, Whoa, Jesus, you were right. Thanks for that fishing tip. I've be- I got to try that from now on. Thank you. Who knew that you knew how to fish? Oh, let's get the fish. You know, fire started for a fish fr- try. He doesn't say anything about the fish. Instead, Simon turns his attention onto himself. He looks inward. Just like Isaiah, he has seen this power of God through Jesus. He's overwhelmed by it, and he falls to his knees and says, Go away from me, Lord. I'm not worthy. Go away from me. I am a sinful man. Similar to the coal touching the tongue of Isaiah That gives him relief. Simon tries to give relief. I mean, Jesus gives relief to Simon and says, Do not be afraid. Which I guess is a way of saying, Don't carry this. You are forgiven. And then at that point, Simon is able to turn his attention away from himself and open himself up to this new possibility. He looks out, looks out to see what is possible. And Jesus gives Simon a new assignment. Now, notice he does not ask a question like in Isaiah, who will go for us? Jesus just tells him, here's your new job. From now on, you will fish for people. He doesn't say, I'm going to make you a better fisherman. I'm going to teach you all you need to know about fishing. Nope. You will fish for people. Now, I believe this is metaphorical. I do not believe he thinks that Simon is going to throw his nets over the side and humans will swim in and they are going to haul them in and sell them at the market. That would definitely break the nets. But I think what he meant is that Jesus, I think what Jesus meant is that from now on, your focus is not going to be on this species underwater. You're going to focus on people and pointing them to me, inviting them to follow me. This is going to be your new calling. Now, again, I don't know if there's missing sentences or what, or it's presumed, But Simon doesn't say anything in response. Now, they're still in the boat, so maybe he was afraid that, you know, they might tip or something crazy might happen. All we know is that what Luke recorded next is they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. We don't even know if he's met Jesus before. We don't know if he paused and pondered and prayed about it and thought about the possibilities, implications, We don't know if he went home to say goodbye to his family and friends or closed up his fishing business. All we know is they left their nets, left everything, not even their nets, left everything and followed him. Now, I don't know about you, but if Jesus said to me, Julie, I have a new plan for your life, and it's totally different from the one that you have now, I think I would have a few questions. Right? I wonder, where are we going? What do I need to bring? How long is it going to take to get there? Who else is coming with me? Even though mom says you're not supposed to ask that. Um, I'd have some questions. I wouldn't just, you know, jump right in. But then it hit me. That's what we do every week when we come to worship, this whole process. We look up and and are aware of God's presence in our lives, perhaps in ways that we had forgotten over the previous six days. We worship God, we give praise and honor, and in that worship, we realize, oh my goodness, I am not the Lord of my life. God is. God is God and I am not. I'm a human, a fallible human being, nowhere near the likes of God. And that leads us to confession and leads us to remind ourselves of who we are in relation to God and relation to each other. And then we can look out and respond to God's call and think about, what does God want for me? What is my purpose like that video? What is it I'm supposed to do as a, as a daughter, as a spouse, as a sibling, as a neighbor, as a staff person? That's going to look different for each of you. But it's probably going to have something to do with your passion. In fact, I love the definition of uh, Frederick Buechner has for a call, a sense of call. He says, it's where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Let me say that again. God's call is where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. the question I have for you is that when you look up and look in and look out, what possibilities do you see? Where might God be calling you to do something a little bit differently? Now let me just say that if you are in survival mode, like the people of Judah were, if you're in a place of grief or fear, you may be too paralyzed to ask yourself this question, and that's okay. Perhaps it's not your time to be thinking of something new and different. I've experienced a little bit of this, a little bit of this in my own life these past five months. Uh, some of you know I've been learning to manage a household and a family as a single parent, and uh, for me, this looking up and in and out has uh, has been scary, and has required me letting go of some nets in my life. So my house is in the market. I have lots of questions, not sure what the future is going to look like. But surprisingly, I have found a peace that I had not experienced before about God guiding my steps and that my job is just to follow. These 55 teenagers that we bless this morning well, they weren't all here, but close to 50 people, are at that point in their lives. They don't know what's next. New possibilities are before them. They're going to be asking lots of questions and not knowing um, what to expect as they face this daunting task of learning about their faith and trying to articulate it. As you probably remember from your confirmation years, if you went through it, that it, it probably took a strong encouragement or, or bribe or threat to get you to do confirmation, whatever whatever it takes. But this idea that you get to a point where you're in a safe place where you can ask questions. Just a quick personal story that I went through this process in seventh grade. I remember the first time asking deep questions, testing, wondering. Lo and behold, 21 years later, I was ordained as a Presbyterian minister. My sister went through the same confirmation process, did not get confirmed right away. She waited a year because she had too many questions. Nine years after my ordination, she was ordained as an Episcopal priest. So all kinds of things can happen as a result of confirmation. Who knows what it will be like for all of you young people, but I trust that God it will... Um, Lead you in some new possibilities and new directions. I pray that your questions, I'm going to talk to the confirmants for a minute, are going to help you to look up and to learn something about God that you don't already know. And I pray that that new knowledge will then help you to see yourself in a new way and that you'll be reminded that you are loved, that you are a precious child of God, important to God's family and that those human experiences you have that feel so isolating and lonely are part of the human experience. You're not alone. And I pray that when you get to that place of new understanding of God and new awareness of yourself, that you too will be open to new possibilities, whether that looks like being a minister or being a teacher or parent or whatever calling that God leads you to. So... Confirmation kids, we are with you, we are supporting you, and for the rest of the congregation. I pray that these scriptures today will give us some new courage and openness for the new possibilities that God might have in store for us. Amen.